your bulletin says that Father Wes will be preaching this morning, and I'm clearly not Father Wes. Uh, Father Wes gave me a call early Friday morning to inform me that he too has come down with COVID symptoms, and uh, and so uh, he is recovering at home, um, as many in our congregation and throughout our city are. So let us continue to pray for Father Wes and his family, um, as well as our uh, entire city. Well, despite COVID, yesterday was a good day. Now, for the first time in my adult life, I have a wood-burning fireplace in my living room. And yesterday, I lit it up and I sat in front of it while I worked on this sermon. It is what I might call a grace. And life is full of such graces, if we're careful enough to acknowledge them. We spend our lives in pursuit of such things, don't we? One of the 10,000 graces that God pours out for each of us is to teach us the difference between what is foolishness and what is not. So discipleship in Jesus is learning to desire the good and stay away from the bad. But it seems inevitable that as the saints grow older, these, grace, these graces satisfy us less and less. Life can be as exciting as a raucous wedding reception, can't it? That is, until the wine runs out. At that point, we realize that even the simplest of joys are fleeting and transient in this life. Is there nothing permanent in this life? You might expect that the church is somehow different. We have the joy of the gospel after all, right? That's true, we do. And even though we just celebrated the 12 days of Christmas, I'm going to assume that there are some here this morning who are longing for even more. Not because they're greedy, as if... They had merely unsatisfied, uh, they were merely unsatisfied with the quantity of Christmas joy. They're wanting something else completely. They're longing for Christ Himself. Our Old Testament passage this morning comes from the end of the book of Isaiah. If you want to get a heartbreaking story of Israel compressed down into a single book, I'd say Isaiah. It's probably your best bet. It's full of God's love for His children and how He lavishes His 10,000 graces upon them. But it's also full of His children's relentless rebellion. Now, Isaiah is not without hope, of course. And as we read moments ago, God tells Israel that she will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of her God. And then comes the embarrassing language of marriage. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, 
so shall your God rejoice over you. I say this is embarrassing because the thought of God as a husband to human beings feels strange. Isn't God our father? Aren't we his children? How are we to think of God in such romantic terms? But if we don't warm up to this language, I think we'll miss the significance of our gospel passage this morning. The wedding at Cana is the first recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospels, and it happens within the first week of his public ministry. Last week, we celebrated the baptism of our Lord, and in that event, Jesus' divine sonship was manifested to all who were present and could accept it. Now that his public ministry has begun, we find our Lord in Cana. John is the only evangelist who records this miracle, or this sign, as he likes to call them. And he does so, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. That's John's stated thesis in his gospel, and you can find it at uh, the, towards the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. And so our first question might be, why this miracle? How does this sign help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the answer should be obvious, I think. Water turning into wine is a miracle. And if Jesus performs that, he must be the Messiah. But this sign is so different from any others because it doesn't really seem to fulfill a utilitarian or practical purpose. Now, I can understand the restoration of a blind man's sight or the healing of the lame or cleansing of a leper or even raising of the dead. Those are restoring God's good creation to its proper state. God made eyes for seeing, made legs for walking, but wine for drinking? Well, John gives us the scene. Jesus, along with his mother and disciples, are invited to a wedding. And at some point, the unthinkable happens, and the caterers run out of wine. Now, this implies that the guests are already in good spirits. And Mary, presumably concerned about the reputation of the wedding party, frantically informs Jesus. Now, Jesus' response is somewhat enigmatic. Was he being disrespectful to his mother? And what did he mean by, my hour has not yet come? Well, since we know that Jesus is perfectly, has perfectly fulfilled the law, especially the commandment to honor father and mother, we can dismiss his response as disrespectful. And at the very least, there is a tension between Mary and Jesus. They both know that he can prevent the faux pas that is happening, yet he was reluctant to do so because his time had not yet come. Now, anytime Jesus mentions his time, 
It usually refers to his crucifixion. So why bring it up now, at the beginning of his ministry? Is this the case of Jesus telling his mother no in one instant and doing the opposite in the next? No, that's not what is happening. And what happens next is telling. Mary turns to some servants saying, do whatever he tells you, anticipating that Jesus is going to do something. But what unfolds is a manifestation of his glory that differs from his crucifixion in many ways, but especially in who his glory is manifested to. You see, when Christ's time comes in his crucifixion, he will be lifted up for all to see, and he will draw all to himself. This is not the time for that. Here and now, Jesus manifests his glory, not to all men, but to servants and disciples. It's interesting that the bride is not mentioned in this story, and that the bridegroom is only barely referred to in passing. And later on, we're told that only the disciples believed in him because of the sign. So this manifestation of Jesus' glory was primarily to the, for the benefit of his disciples. His no to Mary, it's not so much a no as it was a complex yes. I will take care of this, but in such a way as to manifest my glory to those who need to know who I am right now. And this, I think, is for us this morning the Lord's Word. Who Jesus is. What He is like. See, the story continues with what I believe is a display of great extravagance. Six stone water jars holding up to 30 gallons each are filled with water. That's 180 gallons of water. 180 gallons that are about to be turned into choice, inebriating, alcoholic wine. Now keep in mind that all of the wine at the party has already been consumed. And as we learn from the caterer, a different wine is customarily served once everyone is too impaired to tell the difference. In other words, it is at the point in the celebration when things should probably start winding down. And what does God do? Instead of the responsible thing, which would be to turn water into coffee, maybe, with a wink to his disciples and servants, he keeps the party going. Now, we should not overlook the fact that what Jesus used for this miracle were ceremonial water pots. If there is anything from the Old Testament that can be learned... It is that human beings are in great need of cleansing. 
Water is used for washing and cleansing because men and women are unclean. And no matter how much we wash, we always need to wash more. And when Jesus employs the use of these six water pots, he is replacing the thing that is insufficient, the thing that, we, that will not completely satisfy, that is not totally permanent, the thing that must be replenished. Oh, is, he is replacing the thing that will not satisfy, the thing that must be replenished over and over again for something else entirely different. Now, as Anglicans, we are not unaware of wine's significance. We know that on the night Christ was betrayed, he took the cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus turns the insufficient ceremonial water into wine, he does so in such an extravagant abundance that we get a glimpse of not only the limitless love that the Father lavishes upon us, but also the extravagant joy that results in us partaking of it. And this is God's character. Beloved, we are so encumbered by our sins and foibles, our weaknesses and our addictions, and our inability to follow Christ as we long to, and our ability to turn on Christ as we loathe to. That obedience and repentance and discipline and recovery and self-control can take the salt and the flavor out of all the joys of life. Yes, life is quite short, but there are moments, and if you have yet to experience them, you will. When our walk with Christ seems long and never-ending, There are times when we tire of the confessions and absolutions, the accountability partners and the 12-step meetings. We grow weary of the need to form new healthy habits to replace the bad and sinful ones. There will even be times when the liturgy loses its luster, when the hymns and psalms and spiritual songs no longer yank the praise from our lips. That is not all there is. That is not even the point of all of it. In those moments, take a trip back to Cana and remember that the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom of all humanity, has shed his blood once and for all that you and I might have eternal life in his name. Don't be satisfied with the cheap wines of this age. But know that the God who calls you to holiness and perfection is also the God who has a great wedding banquet in the works. The caterers are busy. The servants are preparing. And the disciples have all been invited. There is joy that is not fleeting. And however incomplete the thousand graces He pours out upon us now may be, there is an infinite and extravagant supply. So, when you long, when you are overcome with desire for what does not fade, remember that you were made for your one bridegroom 
and nothing will satisfy you but him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your word, for your encouragement. That you have an infinite supply. That your blood covers all sins. And that as we live this life, this world, and as the road sometimes becomes hard and long, and even though you provide many great joys, increase in us the longing for that wedding banquet where we are once and for all united with you and we see you face to face and that our joy might be complete and full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.